0: Welcome to Sound and Vision,
1: conversations with contemporary artists and musicians about the creative process. Here's the host of Sound and Vision, Brian Alfred. Sound and Vision is proudly sponsored by Golden Artist Colors. Golden makes the best acrylic paints, mediums, and gesso in the business. They also make core watercolors and Williamsburg oil paints. Based in New Berlin in upstate New York, they're an employee-owned company dedicated to making the best supplies for you to make your best work. Check out their products in just about any art store or at goldenpaints.com. Christopher Staley is an artist and educator who works out of Pennsylvania, where at Penn State he is a distinguished professor of art and ceramics in the School of Visual Arts. He received his BFA from the Wittenberg University, studied at the Kansas City Art Institute, and received his MFA from Alfred University. He served as the president of NSICA, the National Council of Education of Ceramic Arts. He was the chair at the Haystack Mountain School in Maine. He's a member of the International Academy of Ceramics based in Geneva. He was an artist in residence at the Ceramic Art Museum in Fu China. He's been an artist in residence at the Archie Bray Foundation in Montana and has received an NEA grant twice. His work is included in the collections such as the Nelson-Atkins Museum of Art in Kansas City, Missouri, the Museum of Fine Arts in Houston, Texas, the Los Angeles County Museum of Art, the Mint Museum in Charlotte, North Carolina, the Palmer Museum of Art in Pennsylvania, the Contemporary Museum in Honolulu, Hawaii, and the Smithsonian National Museum of American Art. To name just a handful, there's many more. He's had over 25 solo shows and has been in countless group exhibitions. He currently has a solo show at the Jane Hartsook Gallery at Greenwich House Pottery at 16 Jones Street in New York City, entitled Touching Time, and it's up until September 27th. I sat down with Chris for a talk about his past growing up and finding balance, motivation, persistence, teaching, learning from experiences, and much more. He's one of the most thoughtful and talented people I know, and he's a joy to talk to. Here's Chris and I in conversation. growing up you played some sports didn't you so were you creative from the get-go
0: you know I've always been curious where motivation comes from or why we do things and I think there was a I wasn't very a very good student and uh, my parents came from very successful backgrounds and there were very high expectations for their children pressure and I was not you know because i was not a very good student i really felt like i was not uh fulfilling their expectations yeah and um i felt really insecure about that and uh you know to the point like i didn't feel like i was very smart or good at anything and you know i was a pretty good athlete and i found like i could i got some compliments when i painted and drew mm-hmm. so i gravitated toward the arts and um So there was a tremendous amount of fear motivating me because I found something I thought I was pretty good at, and I also liked it. So I just spent a lot of time in the arts and sort of knew, like when I was in grade school, that I thought, okay, I think I'm going to go into the arts. Was that all external sort of judgment of like other people saying
1: like, oh, you're pretty good at this, or was it your parents as well? Did they also yeah no my parents
0: yeah my parents sort of said that's a nice drawing or that's you built a neat model or you know so there was definitely affirmation yeah so i think we all want to feel like we can do something well so Mm -hmm. it was definitely encouragement did you have
1: a like a high school or junior high school art teacher too that was
0: i did you know probably the most you know i saw someone throwing pots when i was uh 16, and I thought, my god, it just looked like a magic show. Yeah, so like, I thought, that? Yeah. so I thought, I really want to try that. And I had a really demanding, invested high school ceramics teacher oh, that's cool. that was really passionate. So he was uh, definitely played a large role in sort of my development and my interest in ceramics. What high school, where, where did you go to high school? It was outside of uh, Philadelphia on the main line, Conestoga High School. Uh-huh. And it's ironic because a lot of people. Uh, uh, Michael Connolly and uh, Mobutu uh, Malcolm Mobutu Smith have gone on, and a lot of people his former students went on to have pretty successful ceramic careers yeah so
1: and that yeah. um so I guess when you were in high school and you started was the sports just as intense as you know the art at that point yeah it was I mean high I, school sports is like it really brands you in a certain way in school socially and you know it it has a big impact i think
0: yeah this is most definitely and i'm you know i was in high school in the early 70s so you still felt the idealism and the tumultuous 60s and so forth but But I, i you know i was pretty successful at playing high school football as the captain of the team and we run, won the championship. And, you know, I thought, well, if I play division three football and do really well, I might even be able to go to a pro football camp or something. So I had all these grandiose notions of being better than I actually was. And, um, but you know, when I pretty badly injured my knee and things didn't work out in college, I only played two years of college football. And I, where was that? It was out at, uh, a small division three team out in Ohio called Wittenberg university. Mm -hmm. And actually they were national champions the two years of the four years I was there. So it was really high caliber division three. Yeah. But it just, you know, I just played as a freshman and a sophomore and blew out your knee. Yeah. And then that was it. And then I figured, well, I better really put all my energy into making art. And you know, there was a, yeah I'll just say that and then when I got my senior year I was really thought of as a very talented artist there and got awards and thought I was really good but applied to four graduate schools and I got rejected everywhere I applied and so I was it was probably one of the most frightening times in my life yeah Um, was it kind of what to do next sort of thing it was what to do next and then this idea that I was thought I was pretty good at something yeah and uh got this harsh dose of reality that maybe I wasn't as good as I thought I was and then to get rejected at all the graduate schools I just was at a complete loss as to what to do and it was just you know I I remember just being utterly terrified Yeah, you know truth be told things weren't good on the home front and the thought of going home and living at home was sort of untenable and something I couldn't do so it was like almost kicking into survival mode at that point yeah cuz those are
1: early rejections are hard to take cuz you can't put it in a context. That's so true. After years and years of getting rejected from things and grants and all that stuff, you kind of take the you're like, "All right, I'm going to get maybe one out of 20 things <laughs> that right. I apply to." That's right. And you're okay with that, you yeah. know, but early on you're like, "What? I'm not, yeah. you know, like I'm not good enough." Right. So how did you get over that hump? That's a pretty big hurdle there.
0: Yeah, I thought about it a lot. Actually, my high school teacher going back to him, he really went to Alford and had gotten his MFA and he said this is the place you need to go so he took me up there and I met with some of the faculty up there and I brought my work and I met with a guy named Robert Turner mm-hmm. who uh, I asked him as I was leaving and I on the front doorstep and I said uh, Mr. Turner what are my chances of getting in here and he with these really sympathetic eyes said they're not very good <laughs> and, and I said how come yeah. he said the work just isn't developed enough it's it's uh you haven't found your own voice or your own direction he said, he said you need to really go to a place that takes making pottery really seriously and i was already you know feeling desperate and i asked well, where is this place and he said well a really good place to go right now is the kansas city art institute and in study with ken ferguson oh, nice. so a month later when i got all my rejections everywhere i'd remembered that conversation and uh, to make a long story short, I ended up at the Kansas City Art Institute the following fall and worked as hard as I'd ever worked before and reapplied to the same grad schools and got accepted everywhere. Yeah. And so that really also taught me about how important quality teaching is. Yeah. Because all of a sudden I was in a really high caliber program and I was with some teachers that were just phenomenal educators right and so that sort of also taught me or I never forgot the influence that a really significant teacher can have in somebody's life definitely and yeah. so in many ways that motivated me or inspired me to think about what makes a good teacher and really wanted me you know motivated and inspired me to to try and emulate some of the teachers that I'd had and be the best teacher I could be
1: yeah, it's, it's funny. There's no handbook for that. But you try to use your past experiences that are good. Right. And then the ones that go horribly south, you try to avoid that kind of approach yeah. <laughs> as much as you can. Exactly. Yeah. Which is, you know, I guess that's kind of like growing up, you know, with your, with not you, but with your family. It's like, you know, every parent has their ups and downs. And as a parent, you try to take the good things that you learned and uh, weed out the bad things,
0: yeah, for sure
1: and and try to escape muscle memory of just doing the same thing that you know that you were taught all the time and just you right. know, keep regurgitating those same things over and over again. Yeah, now, was it really a matter of just fundamentals that kept you from getting in at the beginning that you honed? Was it kind of like basic chops of like you know technique, or was it more vision or was it something bigger than that?
0: Yeah, I would have to say it's all of the above, you know. Yeah. Was, I just was not making work that was mature enough and had, hadn't found my own direction. And that, even that, ax, I mean, probably the most indelible question I was ever asked as a student, I had all these cover jars on a table, and, and uh, Ken Ferguson, who was the teacher there at the Kansas City Art Institute, one of the teachers, he said, you know, what are you trying to say with these pots? And no one had asked me that before. Yeah. You know, what's the meaning or what are your thoughts and feelings behind these pots? And that was like a, uh, a seminal moment in terms of my development. So all of a sudden, I had to really start to grapple with, you know, what am I actually trying to do? What am I actually trying to say? Right. And, you know, I've been making pots all through high school and four years as an undergrad. And the thought that I'd never really wrestled with that question, and it's a question I ask to this day in my teaching for almost 40 years as i often ask students you know what are you trying to say with the work yeah and so just asking as an artist asking yourself that question i ask myself that question to this day um and you know that idea that questions are the answer right and uh it's the questions that make art so remarkably important and valuable
1: yeah and it fuels you if you ask those questions That's right. as opposed to just trying to answer things all the time yeah. I feel like, I don't want to assume this and I don't th- know that much about ceramics but, or pottery but I feel like in the West maybe that idea has been segregated from the functionality of, of the use of pots a little more than in Eastern culture where I think the utilitarian way that you interact with forms in, of, of like pottery or things like that are a little more I don't know, there's just like a spirit in objects or there's, there's less of the I would imagine that the question of, like, why are you making it maybe lives a little more in the process of that in Eastern culture.
0: I think that's true. I mean, I you've spent a lot of time in Japan. I, I haven't. I've only been to India and China. And yeah. So I don't... That sense of reverence for uh, functional ceramics or functional pots in a culture I've not necessarily experienced, but... To your point, I think that it is hard teaching in an art school in the United States and also having students that want to make functional pots. uh, To support them intellectually and conceptually uh, that they're doing something of real merit and real value has been challenging as a teacher because I think most art teachers, at least the United States, can be very dismissive of functional pots right. because they don't think it can be as intellectually or as conceptually rigorous as say painting yeah so
1: yeah and I, and maybe part of that is the the question of why you're making it um, you know there's this desire for the western avant-garde to push past the functionality like there has to be that bigger meaning and there can't be a beauty in art in the way that you simply interact with a functional item which I think is there you know what I mean but it's... Yeah, those are complicated questions. <laughs> it is it's complicated,
0: a, but I think that as, as I've... Uh, every year that goes by when I teach, I mean, there's more insights into how the... You know, this idea that everything we make is a metaphor. Mm-hmm. You know, and I, this new assignment that I do, I love to just pass out pieces of paper, and I ask people to scribble on the piece of paper just for 30 seconds, and then they pass the paper to the person to their right, and they look at the other person's scribble, and then I ask them all, okay, what does that scribble say to you? And every single person can say, well, it looks like fog, or it looks like rain, mm-hmm. or you know, it looks like uh, leaves falling on the ground. Everyone says it looks like something. Right. And so it's a, just a really direct example that everything is a metaphor. So when you're making pots, the skin of a pot can have a metaphor for something. Right. So this idea of awareness and metaphors and the implications of uh, making parts of pots and how they relate and the creativity and the composition and the sense of materiality. I mean, honestly, uh, Brian, I think it's painting, photography, performance. It's all the same in terms of like, just if you break it down in terms of creativity or or the craft or the composition or the content. And so it's sort of how... Uh, perceptive and aware and curious you can be as a teacher and somehow divorce oneself from one's own aesthetic and appreciate uh, a student's aesthetic however unique that might be that's yeah, that's and, a real uh, goal I think. It's, yeah, it's a I think I uh, like your saying it's a real goal because it, it can be very difficult to do.
1: <laughs> yeah, I've had teachers that you know that they're leaving nothing at the door. Like they're bringing their agenda, their aesthetic, their right. you know, idea of what everything should be like into yeah. your studio and projecting yeah. it on your work. And I feel yeah. like if you really a good teacher will understand what the, the students or want to understand what the students trying to say. Right. And then maybe bridge the gap between their interpretation of the work and what they're trying to say. Right. And not what you think they should be saying. Right. Which is a big difference. But it's yeah. hard to do, I think. I'd I agree with you. It's very it's, hard to it, do. Frankly, at times it can be exhausting.
0: <laughs> yeah, but I think that this idea that, you know, it, it's, I've been really curious about ego mm-hmm. and the, this idea of the dissolution of ego and and how you can. Your world gets much bigger when the ego isn't involved. And I noticed, you know, I don't want to go off the rails with this interview or talk here, but we live in an environment, particularly in academia, that's so stressful in terms of external validation or expectations that stress, ego really plays into stress. In fact, ego creates a lot of stress because we have these expectations and things need to go a certain way. And the world gets really small. Definitely. When we're super stressed out. Right. It just becomes almost survival mode. And we often contribute to that stress or that expectation.
1: Unknowingly, in a way. Yeah. You know, especially, I think, younger people. Yeah. are you know, just entering into this kind of, you know, it's a, almost like an ego-shaming visual culture, in a way. Or, you know, it's, it's like you're constantly being critiqued. You know, it's a, the beauty of, like, going into an art studio is... That you can go in there and mess up and you can just work right. out ideas and there's not like 50 teachers standing behind you while you're working being like, nah, nah, not good, you know, <laughs> right. like you would never make anything that way. Yeah. And I feel like these days, even in the past, you know, I haven't been teaching that long, but even in the past from like 10 years ago. Um, you know, the students are much less willing to take risks because they feel like it's just not going to be good. Like, they'll critique themselves out of doing something before they even start. Right. And and they'll look at other things and be like, well, it's only going to be good if it's kind of like that thing that I like or that other people really like. Right. You know, which is, I don't know if that's the best model for, for really... You know, a being productive and making a lot of work because that's really how you learn is Uh just to make stuff and and mess up and keep working on it. But it's almost like they're cutting themselves off before they even get there. You know, and that's I think that's external pressure. You know, Mm -hmm. I had you know I had students in the class yesterday and I had them drawing portraits and you know and they were just all obsessed with it, just not looking like just exactly like. You know the other person or whoever right. they're drawing, and it's like, you know, there's there's other questions you can ask here. You sure, know, you can. There's a lot of different ways you can describe yourself or other people other than just drawing a face. But ninety eight percent just drew a face. You know, Right. and I think that's part of that is like the fear of letting down people, and then also that it's just not going to be good enough. Mm-hmm. Not easy. But was Ken teaching you past that? Do you feel like he was trying to motivate students past? That initial step and and to ask those bigger questions and and you did it hit your radar, or did you kind of were you able to process that at that point
0: You know I'm not to uh, not answer your question but i'm sixty five now I turned mm-hmm. sixty five this past summer and you one of the benefits of growing older is you have a longer view or longer perspective over a period of time. Mm-hmm. And all of us have sort of maybe strengths or weaknesses, or and you can start to put over the long game. You can start to put can start to connect dots in terms of why things might be the way they are. I mean, I think the one thing that I was trying so hard, and I was working in porcelain, and porcelain is a difficult clay to use, and I think Ken saw in my pots that I was just trying too hard. And he sort of blew it all up when he said, you know, you might have to be here for two or three years. And he said, you're really not doing very well. He said, uh, you know, why don't you uh, go out and have a beer once in a while? And, uh, (laughs) And why don't you start using stoneware? And why don't you start just playing and having some fun? Yeah. And I sort of took that, I took it all to heart, and I just loosened up. And to your point earlier, it was just sort of, You know, I was still working hard, but it was like, yeah, let it happen. See what happens. In other words, um, you know, it's the same same in athletics. If you're trying too hard, if you're trying to score the goal or make the point, you usually tighten up and then don't do it. But if you just sort of, you know, step back a bit and relax and uh, be more aware, then things can sort of happen. And the same I found true in the studio. If I can just... uh, be much more receptive to the process and what's actually happening. And, uh, you know, that idea, I'm always telling students, notice what you notice. You know, just if just one thing sort of tweaks your interest, maybe go with that and see what that happens. And yeah. Yeah, so.
1: go with the thing that interests you and, and exploit that. You know, Absolutely. Like, let that work for you. Yeah. yeah, Yeah, that letting it come to you thing is a hard thing to do, I think. But once you start to let things come to you, it becomes easier in a
0: way, you know? Yeah, I think that's really too, true, Brian. Like,
1: if I'm trying to find something I lost in my apartment and I I get really stressed out and I run all over, I'm never going to find it. But the moment I'm like, all right, I'll find it sooner or later. You know, like 20 minutes later, I go in a cupboard and there it is. You know? It's yeah. just kind of like... you.
0: And, and I think with making work, that kind of resonates, you know? So, too... And I think, as a teacher, that's part of our responsibility is to create an atmosphere where students will let it come to them, yeah, and so even you know it's a tough thing you 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 and I both know that how significant hard work and putting the time in the studio is but, uh, I think that is important, but there's also something important about uh, leading a balanced life in some way and sort of advocating for that and you know i you know i sometimes ask the question of older people were there uh, a couple times in your life where there was a real crossroads or where you experienced something really uh, painful that ended up teaching you something Mm -hmm. and uh, that's the benefit of, of, of being older i think that we can learn from those experiences. And um, and perhaps as teachers, we can try and um, help students maybe uh, not be as uh, uh, disappointed by, uh, you know, failures and so forth and realize right. that there can be something meaningful in those. But yeah. I think we often use those... You know, failure is being positive as platitudes, and students don't believe us. Right?
1: Uh, They're like, yeah, that doesn't really work. In real right. <laughs> it sounds great in your poetic. Yeah. We <laughs> right. fail all the time. It's great. Yeah. But yeah. I'm not telling my son in math for his math scores. You know, just go in there and fail. It's, you're going to learn yeah, a lot exactly. if you fail that math test. He's yeah. like, no, I'm going to be going to get kicked out of school. It's going to be terrible. Yeah. Yeah. There's a time and place, I think, for that kind of right. understanding but I think about that in relation to age I think it's like a puzzle piece too because if I think back to when I was in college and I was working like you know I had endless energy just working all night and sleeping on the studio floor for a few hours and then going back to work if I if I went back to that time and said well you should have lived a more balanced life at that point I don't think I would have just looked back and thought maybe I was lazy you know what I mean like that was the time for me to just empty the tank and go crazy yes so I think that's a good thing in a way, you yeah. know. And you learn something about how to pace yourself. It's almost like you have to run a marathon and just sprint at the beginning and just totally tire yourself out within like the first hour. And then you learn, okay, now I understand I can't do that. This is how I'm going to pace myself to like you know make it to the finish line. And to so it's almost like there's different moments in in your life where you need to kind
0: of like change speeds and reflect more and and all that I think you're absolutely right but I think what's critical is what you said about changing speeds like you couldn't if you kept doing that and that was all you did you'd probably end up just running yourself you know off the road just Just fried fried. you'd be cooked
1: or making the same thing over and over again out of ease of not having to think about new decisions or you know just beating a dead horse over and over again
0: Well, and I do think that you know this idea of life and art, and basically our artwork is inspired by our lives, and so you know this idea of you know living and experiencing things, and this the notion of our thoughts and feelings being conveyed in our in our uh, in our artwork is you know there's there's something uh, really. I mean, I forget her name, the poet that wrote Proust and Theories the, uh, uh, Lois Glick, I think is her name, and she talked about fallow times, or the importance of you're not working in the studio, and what you do when you're out of the studio yeah. and, you know, for me, you know, one of the most you know, upsetting thing was being married to an artist, and then having the marriage just fall apart and it was because i was in large part i was putting all my energy into my artwork right and just thought well this marriage will take care of itself it's you know on automatic pilot when the fact of the matter was it just crashed yeah and uh and that was a real uh, awakening for me that relationships take as much time and commitment and creativity probably more so I was going to say if not more yeah (laughs) than the artwork and I had to learn that the really hard way yeah and uh, uh, you know and again truth be told the older I've gotten the more important relationships are I think at the end of the day you know you know who do you who do you turn to when you really need to talk to somebody like who are the best listeners in your life yeah and uh, those you know and relationships take time definitely so that balancing of you know relationships in your life that are important to you and your own work is a real balancing act right and then you know how do you have richer relationships how do you get closer to somebody and that takes you know a degree of listening and a degree of curiosity and the willingness to be vulnerable and I think that's one of the things I've found with, with teaching that evolved over the years is uh, realizing how important it was as a teacher for me to be vulnerable. Not in some sort of narcissistic or psychoanalytical way, but in this idea that, you know, this is hard, what we're doing. It's not easy. I, you know, the Man. creative process is uh, a challenging one for everybody. And, and, we know, and we don't have all the answers. We yeah, don't have all the answers. sometimes people want
1: all the answers. Right, right. <laughs> And you just, you have to be okay with saying like, yeah, well, no one knows that, you know? Yeah. Same thing with a parent. It's like, I remember getting to the point with my kid of being like, you know, yeah, no one, like, why are we here? Those questions and being okay with saying like, yeah, we don't, no one knows how we got here, or why we're here. Yeah. You know, it's a hard thing to to wrap your head around and to, to be okay saying in a way. Right. Because part of you wants to be like, oh, well... I can explain it for you and right. make you feel better you know? right? but like no we, we have no idea who, who knows what's going to happen yeah. whenever we pass you know what I mean it's, those are yeah. difficult things to kind of accept in a way
0: well the, one of my favorite books is by Alan Watts and The, the Wisdom of Insecurity and um, he talks about not knowing and the significance of not knowing and I remember hearing one of my faculty members in grad schools I asked him a question about my work and he said oh, I, gosh I just don't know and uh I just thought that was a for me one of the most important answers I heard It's like no it's we don't always know the answers, and I think that that's true in talking to students when students do, sometimes say, "I'm not sure why I did that work, and I always say that's okay, yeah, you know it's like you might just live with that question for a while It's coming it's, from somewhere and it, yeah, you know? see if something comes to you, but it's okay not to know. It seems to me that that's the magic of art is it's not this sort of tightly packaged conceptual uh message that's all resolved right
1: otherwise you'd write essays (laughs) yeah (laughs) you know yeah just pontificate exactly what you mean right that's the beauty of it it's vague and gray in a way yeah yeah well when you so when you got out of school you traveled a lot too and i feel like travel you learn a lot from traveling and early on when i was you know kind of like a studio hermit before I was teaching and dadding and doing all that other stuff I found that when I had a show somewhere and I was traveling that that was a great source of inspiration for me. not only was I learning about other cultures and other people but I was like taking in a whole different visual you know buffet of
0: stuff you know when did you start traveling because you've been to a lot of places right yeah it's sort of ironic because I in this uh, recent catalog that I wrote for this show I talked about moving every two to three years when I was growing up and how hard that was and particularly with my the home front was uh, sort of not a respite or safety or anything so there was a real sense of uh, sort of Darwinian survival as a young boy and um, so it's ironic that I have moved a lot until coming to State College which you know taught here for 29 years but to your point i think there is when you're going to new places continually you're having to adjust uh, to those places and uh, when you're adjusting to something somehow you have to there's a degree of flexibility or sort of education that takes place in terms of how we um, interact with the world around us
1: Yeah. And being okay with not knowing because there's going to be a lot of stuff you don't, you know, you just don't know. Yeah.
0: I also think that, you know, I'm thinking that it forces you to get out of your comfort zone and also this idea of emotional intelligence Mm -hmm. in terms of walking into a room of people you don't know and feeling completely comfortable with that. And I think that's one of the huge problems in our culture today And when talking to students. And some of them are absolutely terrified and won't even go to a room where they don't know anyone or they'll just be sure that they just stare into their iPhone the whole time. Right. And so, you know, I've, I think as teaching went on, I, I saw some students that were incredibly talented but would somehow shoot themselves in the foot because they were, had real issues with a lack of emotional intelligence. Mm-hmm. And I realized that it's, it's more than just... Uh, you know making art it's also about uh, making yourself as a human being and growing as a person yeah and uh, you know the whole uh, the whole issue of like people skills and so forth I think is really a significant thing and I don't think it has to be you know when you teach art it necessarily has to be mutually exclusive right
1: yeah I know you know
0: people I'm sure that you there's a degree of acumen and and uh Uh, uh, communication that you have that's helped you navigate the New York art world in some way
1: yeah yeah I think uh, I'm teaching a class now about you know kind of like what to do when you get out of school yeah and I think a lot of them are expecting it to just be like oh I here's the residencies here's the CV or whatever but a lot of it is about okay um, you're going to be communicating with people face to face you've got to kind of be able to be social and to engage with people you know i think that idea of the artist is like you know the caveman in the studio who can't really function socially is kind of past and you know people need to be able to make connections and and you get a lot from that you know of meeting and discussing things with people and and that's an important part of presenting yourself and being a part of a community that i think is often overlooked and i don't know when i was in school that i ever learned anything about that you know right it was kind of on-the-job training. It's like, okay, here you go. You're in the city now. Yeah. Meet people. Like, uh, you know, go engage. And and I think there's a lot of people who are... These days a little awkward at, you know, either public speaking or, or meeting people in the flesh and not just, you know, doing it over the internet. So I think it's a valuable thing to learn and to navigate, you know.
0: How do I talk to people? Yeah, and I think that, you know, this... It's one of the things I try to be super aware of when, when I'm teaching is uh to be very conscious of how much I'm talking and mm-hmm. if if I'm talking too much. Right. And you know, how can I get the students to feel comfortable talking more and right. asking them questions and you know, that idea. I've always liked that, you know, the three different styles of teaching. I know I talking with you in the past about teaching and I've talked about that with the you know, the uh, Peter McLaren's three different ways of teaching the sort of the hegemonic overlord and then the entertainer and then the liminal servant this mm-hmm. liminal servant's constantly inviting the students to to sort of share their thoughts and um, I think that that is becoming uh, less and less of a uh, an occurrence I think that we are in so many organizations are about sort of um, proving your self-worth or, you know, having to validate yourself so people are always wanting to talk and not so much be curious about what others are saying. Right,
1: yeah. More talking and, and not as much listening exactly. as you should be doing. Yeah. Yeah, because then you... There's such a much more of an understanding of the message you're trying to get across if you're listening to the people. Mm-hmm. You know, and there's this great fallacy that artists are just making work and then they put it out there and then the work engages with the public or something and that's the line of communication but really art is communication it's talking to people through visual imagery and you you have to be kind of understanding of how to communicate and what that means you know what I mean it's not just putting something down on canvas or making you know a sculpture or a photograph or whatever it is and just like sticking it on a wall it's really about communication like what your ideas are and how you're communicating this to the world you know, so I think that extends past the act of making a piece of artwork, and also to the artist themselves.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: Which is, can I, I think, can be a real challenge.
0: Yeah, I know. Yeah, I, I have to also say that, you know, it's ironic that both you and I, you and I are having shows in New York right now, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, you're showing at this really amazing uh, gallery in Chelsea. And basically, you know, it's hard to have a show anywhere for an artist in New York. And I've sort of been not making a lot of work the last 10 years and not showing a lot. So just to get a show in New York was challenging. And I applied to the Greenwich House Pottery and they Mm -hmm. have a, you know, uh, an application process and a review process. And they said, okay, you can have a show and so forth. So it's been 10 years since I had a show. And people ask, you know, how's the show going? (laughs) <laughs> and the the, the subtext to that question is you know how are sales yeah did you sell a lot of work did you sell a lot right. of work so it's a it's an interesting thing and a really good galleries have a whole cadre of collectors that they're connected with and mm-hmm. those collectors get connected with the work and there's this whole sort of uh uh culture if you will of how the work gets sold to collectors and so forth right. and if you're not in that culture it's it can be really problematic and so that's a certain paradigm that operates and so back to that idea of art connecting with people i've been thinking more and more maybe it's because i come from ceramics and i've made functional pots. but you know how do you uh, get people that have no interest in art to become interested in art right and that's a really interesting question to me and, and so i don't think the big questions are being asked right. enough And, you know, to question the paradigm that we operate in, you know, and, you know, asking education, what's the most, you know, the important questions aren't being asked. Like, you know, how do you define success or what do you really value? And uh, those questions are hard to grapple with as human beings, particularly in our culture where most people think of success as financial or some sort of status. Right. Right. And uh, so I've been asking that question more the latter part of my life in terms of like how does how can we how can art connect to people that will never go to Chelsea? Right. Is how valid a question is that? And I just one of the strengths of the world of art right now is how diverse and how pluralistic it is. And I don't think that you know I'm not in any way denigrating what goes on at Chelsea or the art scene in New York City because it's there's some amazing work it's taking place there mm-hmm. uh, and there's a vetting system that uh, that happens there that I think is important uh, but I also embrace this idea that there's infinite creative ways of making work and having it be seen by people
1: now more than ever yeah. I mean there are people you know 20 years ago there weren't people sharing their work on phones and then selling their work and having, you know, 100,000 people following their work, looking at their studio every day. You know what I mean?
0: <laughs> yeah, and you're much more uh, aware and tuned in, Brian, to what the uh, internet has to offer but in terms not, of I opportunities. Mean, I, well, yeah. I do
1: that with yeah. a very, you know, limited... Like, I do it almost as, like a like, an obligation. Like, I've got to, like, stay... Yeah. in this line of communication so people can see what I'm up to. But there are people, like usually younger people, who are, you know, that's their main way that they connect with people. Absolutely. And it's, it has nothing to do with the gallery system. It has nothing to do with a location necessarily. They're in Texas. They're in, you know, Nevada. They're they're in, you know, Paris, mm-hmm. wherever. Mm-hmm. So I, I think that is... You know, that has created a a different kind of system for people to engage with art. And I see it in my classes. My students, when I tell them to look up an artist, they don't Google them. They Instagram them. You know what I mean? Or they, when they look for inspiration, they're not going to Chelsea galleries to look for inspiration. Mm. They don't care about, I bring up people who are showing now in Chelsea galleries and they're like, "Mm, yeah, whatever. This guy on Instagram
0: his time-lapse
1: videos are amazing, you know, <laughs> and like that's what they're looking at. Yeah, So I think that that field has been leveled quite a bit. I mean, I'm reading that Ninth Street Women book, you mm-hmm. know, about like Frankenthaler and Lee Krasner, and the, and to think back then, like as a woman to crack in, it was so sexist and so hard to even get a show, yeah. and your work would not sell for as much as the, the men's work, you know, into where we are now, which I'm not saying is perfect by any means but you know the field has been even geographically like back then there were like what 20 or 30 galleries or something Mm -hmm. now there's like you know you can trip and fall in new york (laughs) or chicago or la (laughs) and into a gallery so yeah interesting it's been widened considerably i think and the discourse around art has opened up too to where it's not just that you know and now you know any There are even, like, art podcasts with... I've seen art podcasts out there, and I was like, oh, this is cool, this is an art podcast. And I look, and there's, you know, 300 episodes, and I don't know a single artist that's Mm -hmm. on that Mm -hmm. list, which I find great and amazing. You know, it's like people are are being able to connect outside the quote-unquote system Uh of of the art world. Right, right. Good points. But, yeah, it's all a big, complicated web of, you know whatever and it's funny cuz the the level of success you talk about that when i hear artists asking like oh how'd your show do i think it's more of like oh did you sell enough work to like keep your studio not like did you get you know that new porsche that you were thinking of you know <laughs> right. that giant apartment yeah. so it's kind of like well hopefully you you made enough money that you could keep working on your work right. you know without working that job that 18 hour day job or whatever. Right. Which, right. I mean, it's all ideal, you know, but that's all you want to, well, I think at the end of the day, you just want that time to be able to, to think about like, that's the hard part. You need time to think mm-hmm. about making work and then also the time to make that work. Right. Well, so how's it feel to have this current show up there? Not how's it going, but like, does it feel nice to, cause it's been a little while since you've, yeah, shown I mean do you like that process or you know how's that whole side of it
0: it's a good question they always you know they always say that it's the journey it's not the destination right and uh, I have to say working really hard in the studio this last year and you know I went to Betzalel Academy of Art in Jerusalem and then I was out at the Archie Bray Foundation in Montana and then working here in State College that yeah the creative process was sort of Felt like it was giving a lot back to me. Yeah. And the sense of sort of revealing its uh, self in terms of possibilities and that idea of letting go. And you sort of realize that the process can actually uh, inform you about things about yourself that you don't know. Right. And so that was. Um, pretty special yeah. and I guess some of those things are just a reminder of uh, uh, you know what we were talking about earlier letting go or just following a muse or just not even know why you're doing something but still going ahead to do it yeah. and I guess it's that sense of play and how to interject play and then uh, realizing you know that The work sort of says, oh, yeah, you know, I'm older now and much more aware of my own mortality. And maybe the death of my father 16 months ago is playing out in my work somehow. And, uh, you know, it's a poignant thing when they talk about grieving. And the more that you love someone... Probably is equitable or equates to how much you grieve the passing of that person, so yeah. there were times where I felt like that sort of grieving was coming in the studio in some way and what I was making, and I think with this idea of entropy or decay uh, or the aging process, and sort of how does that reveal in things that you make? and sort of uh, is that
1: what that work? Do you feel
0: like that's been injected
1: into the current show that you have now? That work is kind of has it in its
0: mind in a way. You know, I I think that in retrospect and sort of midway through it, you know, I started off making these pots that sort of were very bold and strong in terms of form, and I've always been intrigued with this idea of strength and vulnerability, Mm -hmm. and so and someone said these forms look like brutalist architecture. They have such a sense of strength and presence. And then as I was working, then I started to sort of break down those forms and that was sort of the unconscious part. So I think it was that sort of, it's the first show I've had that where I showed both directions and work usually shows in the past have shown one or the other. Um, maybe I've done that to some degree in the past, but this one it was really evident. Yeah. And, um, so I was trying to in some way uh, capture the passage of time. How is it in working, like let's say
1: you know that body of work that's kind of I don't know if it's subconsciously, but you know it's 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 navigating those two kind of or or different areas in the work. But then you're also literally in different places making the work, right? Because are you making work when you traveled? To the to the like when you're in Jerusalem, you're making work for that show in all those different places. Yeah. So, how does the does the location that you're working on ever kind of directly influence or
0: change the flow of all that work? Yes, absolutely. I mean, there's a, a cover jar that I made called Betzalel and there was one day where I went to the uh, Jerusalem Museum of Art and they had just phenomenal collection of archaeological historical pots and things made out of stone and there was like a sacrificial uh, uh, I don't know pedestal I guess that was in the museum that was just remarkable in terms of cut stone and Mm -hmm. you know I took a picture of it and that definitely influenced this cover jar I made so it was like when they wanted the titles of the pieces in the show, I just thought, well, it was influenced by my time working at Betzalel, so I just put Betzalel. So it was definitely a direct relationship yeah. between that experience. And uh, and so I think, you know, maybe working in the Bray, uh, you know, where I really had time and started uh, sort of bearing down and making these sort of brutalist phases, and then some of them I didn't really particularly like in this so I was going to just slake them down and reclaim the clay. But in the process of reclaiming or slaking down, I realized, well, maybe they can have another life. And, you know, and putting them in reclaimed clay, mm-hmm. there was this combination of what was going to become and what was actually happening in this immersion and in, in this uh, scraps of clay. And the sort of combination is the thing sinking or rising and, uh, so that just came out of that sort of experience and having the time to work.
1: It seems like that that could be influenced by the place, but also too, that 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 has to come with the experience and time of all that work as well, right? Because like if you were doing that work at 24, you might not have the,
0: the same, I don't know how to describe it the, no, the, you're, you're the absolute, life
1: history or something you're
0: absolutely right i mean i'm always intrigued with artists work that changes over their lifetime because yeah. i just don't understand how someone's work basically stays the same because i feel profoundly different than i did when i was in my 20s or 30s yeah. and uh and similar in some ways but when i you know our artists asked to you know give powerpoints or presentations of their work you know there's this Chronological evolution and yeah, my work in the it flows, yeah, 20s when I was 20 in my 20s and uh, early 30s was just all about sort of this tour de force of clay as movement and fluidity and technical virtuosity and like using slip in ways that you know I was really pushing it, yeah. so it was like you know, there was a real sort of a just. Dist- celebration of almost athleticism in the work, mm-hmm. you know, and how athletic and how much could I blow people away with my technical virtuosity. And yeah, I don't know if I was thinking it at the time, but in looking back, that's what I was doing. Yeah. Yeah. I did that with early work. Even when I was a student,
1: undergraduate student here, it was like, I was throwing everything in the kitchen sink in there, just being like, look at how hard I worked on this. Yeah. And it took me a long time to, to, Weed all that out and mm-hmm. be okay with just something very simple, mm-hmm. you know, because it's that's riskier, you know, yeah. in a way of just painting something very simple and people could just say, well, like anyone can make that." I mean, what's the big deal, you know? Yeah. But I think you get to a certain place where you feel really confident in those decisions. But right. It it kind of takes a while. I'm interested too that idea too of the the not changing versus changing thing. Right. It's so. I I agree with what you're saying and I I feel like it's so hard that's such a sliding scale in a way too because I, I know that some people make these like minuscule changes in their work to the outside viewer they don't even see it right it looks exactly the same but like little changes that we make in the studio in our own work feel epic when we do something slightly different like you know It could just be like a certain color that you're using or a little bit of an edge that's a little less refined as it usually is or something that feels so monumental to you. But other people are like, yeah, that looks just like your other work, you know what I mean? Right. Or someone like one of my art heroes is Ankawara and his work of just being the same thing. I mean, it's a very kind of like Buddhist sort of, you know, meditative thing of... You know, the work is the same every day I'm making these date paintings, but it's totally different because what's happening on those days is so different. And it's, it's this long look at the passage of time, which is very beautiful and kind of, Mm
0: -hmm. especially
1: in the midst of all the change and chaos of our society to see Mm -hmm. something that could just be repetitive in Mm a way, like Mm a, you know, like a John Cage composition or something. It's really, you know, I could never do it, but I love to look at it, Yeah, you know?
0: Yeah, no, I think that that's true, that everyone's got, obviously everyone's different, and everyone's life is different, and Mm -hmm. everyone's artwork is different, and maybe for some people that sense of what we would perceive as refinement is sort of significant growth in in them, and maybe they've found a place of exploration that they can, you know, like Georgia Morandi, painting bottles for his whole life, I mean... Some amazing work, and so, um, yeah, I guess we all need to uh, reconcile ourselves to being ourselves, and uh, I think a lot of it comes from experience
1: too, right? Like, of where you come from and what is valued in a way, you know what I mean? Like, if you grow up and you're, you're the highlight of your year every year is your family vacation, yeah, and each year it's somewhere different. Right and exciting. One right. year we go rapids like tubing and yeah. one year it's like an amusement park and you know, or camping at the Grand Canyon or something. And then you kind of ex- your expectation of like what is exciting and what is, is change and development and fun is this new thing all the time. Whereas there might be another person who every year they their family goes to the same cabin upstate. Right. And they just have a family get together there and it's yeah. the same thing every year. But it's that tradition and that sameness that they really value. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. So maybe those kind of tendencies come from a, a sort of learned thing in your past or something.
0: Yeah, I think you're right. They're both equally valid. They're both important. Like I at the opening uh, this past uh, Saturday at the gallery, I was taught a life lesson that I'll never forget. (laughs) Really? Yeah. There was, the opening was scheduled between three and five and they said a collector was interested in my work, so I should come early. So I Mm -hmm. went early and there were very, just a handful of people there. um, You know, the first hour or so. Yeah. And there was one person there that I thought was, uh, might be homeless Mm -hmm. and they sort of didn't smell very good and they were drinking a lot of wine Mm -hmm. and sort of like rocking back and forth and, I felt myself uncomfortable with the person there right. and the space and everything and then I asked myself why I was uncomfortable, and it wasn't sort of this idealized notion of what I wanted it to be right and so I was worrying about this guy being there much more than I should have, and mm-hmm. didn't like how I was responding to this awkward situation and then he kept looking at his watch and then. He was gone, and I walked outside. He was sitting uh, right before you got out to the sidewalk. He was sitting on a stool there, and, and maybe he's a regular guy there. Yeah. I don't know. Right. And as I was leaving in a very measured voice, he said, Are you enjoying yourself? <laughs> and uh, it made me rethink, like maybe I should have introduced myself and talked at least asked this guy how he was doing. Right. So, um, again, I was sort of feeling stressed out, you know, about the opening and hoping it would go well, whatever that means. Right. And uh, I'm just increasingly curious about ego and that idea of living in an environment that seems increasingly stressful in many Mm -hmm. ways and how to... You know, I once heard David Hickey say that art is about community and how does one actually live and enhance or enrich community. And um, there's a degree of acceptance and maybe welcoming that I certainly wasn't uh, uh, displaying uh, at the beginning of that opening. So it was something I... It was one of those events that I won't forget. Yeah. And... um, so I guess it's all what we value, and how asking ourselves what we value, and then actually asking ourselves if we're our lives our lives are actually um, living up to those things that we value.
1: Yeah. Yeah, that's a <laughs> a big thing hanging out there. You know, it is. Yeah, that doesn't really go away, and I think you it's constantly. It's almost like those they're not tests but those situations reveal themselves over and over in different ways in your life and you're constantly kind of like I mean I guess if you're trying to better yourself as a person you're trying to improve on those situations or if you don't care you just <laughs> yeah you just say get this guy out of my opening he's making me feel yeah like he's gonna knock something over or yeah you know there's different ways well, I to had that
0: thought him. that exact thought that you right. just had but well, I think and
1: then living in New York <laughs> I I would have you know thought and I wouldn't put it past someone to come in here and knock over something you know yeah. what I mean or some crazy yeah. person to walk in because right. you, you deal with a lot when you're there so yeah. you know you kind
0: absolutely of <laughs> yeah but it is it is sort of once you know I, I think that that's going back to your question about you know what was it like making work for this show that you know you have different sort of moments in living that can be real you know sounds cliche or um hokey but they can be teaching moments yeah and uh, i think that somehow you know because art's more about questions than answers that you know when you we like a work of art you know it's question is is why do we like it you know it's interesting to try and say why are we drawn to this or why am i drawn to this now and i wasn't drawn to it 10 years ago yeah and um You know, I often, when my family, when we go see a show, we'll look at the show and then we'll all ask each other, what was your favorite piece and why? Right. And it turns into sort of an educational conversation that not only be able to articulate why you like something, but also listen to why someone else likes something else and maybe see that piece differently than we saw it before. Yeah, definitely. And so I'm always intrigued with what makes us uncomfortable. And sometimes I feel like I'm able to rise to the occasion mm-hmm. and deal with it. And other times I sort of succumb to the occasion and am not able. But at least that idea of engaging life. And maybe with the path of my father and getting older, you know, I, you know the Mary Oliver quote, I love to recite to students, like, what are you going to do with your one wild and precious life? Right. And most 20-year-olds aren't thinking of their lives as necessarily precious. Right. And no, they're just thinking one wild night. That's right. What oh, are you going to do this one wild Friday? <laughs> well That's right. That's all what, they care that about. Wild, what am I going to do on my wild Saturday night? Right, exactly. <laughs> but so for them to hear that, they, it reframes things in a way that I think uh, might ask, you know, they might ask bigger questions in right. terms of like everything's not just dependent on that Saturday night. Definitely.
1: Yeah. And I think as a teacher, you have to be okay with the fact that some of these seeds that you try to plant, they're not going to sprout <laughs> for another five to ten years. Because it happened with me. I was like, oh, yeah. I thought back and I was like, oh, you know, the thing they said, oh, that kind of makes sense, you know? Yeah. And, I, and as a parent, I feel the same way. Yeah. yeah I tell my kid that things all the time that I hope, Like, I know right now it's going in one ear and out the other, but hopefully 15 years from now, it's like, well, you know, my dad used to say blah 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 you know what I mean That's yeah. all you can hope for I guess yeah I would be yeah. remiss if I didn't because I'm thinking of it now um, ask when you're working in the studio is it silent or do you listen to music or do you listen to podcasts or news or what do you do as far as audio whenever you're working you know I'll be
0: candid with you it's sure. either uh, guns and roses <laughs> guns and roses it's either silence uh huh or um, I play the same tape over and over again. Oh yeah, what yeah, is it? Like James Taylor or okay yes, so I'm not relaxing. Yeah, not high key like right. And it just it's like becomes like a mantra or something. It's just over and over. Right. But when I'm really focused in the studio, it's everything's off. Silence. Silence. Yeah.
1: Do you do earplugs
0: ever? Never earplugs. Although earplugs when I sleep quite often I've been doing that yeah I just it's helping yeah I have these the
1: those Bose headphones too that have the noise canceling and sometimes I'll just put the noise canceling on and don't put music on okay just for a little bit of silence yeah you know yeah but when I work I, I, I'm i always listening to music yeah and I think it's it's like coffee and music it's just I'm just trying to squeeze as much energy out of me sure. as I get, sure you know just to make whatever happen happen yeah which you know Takes a lot. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, so you got your show up. How long is it up? I think it's up till September twenty eighth. Does it say in this? Yeah,
0: yeah.
1: And um, it's open, I believe Wednesday through Sunday, right?
0: Yeah, I think it's Wednesday through Sunday from noon to six. I believe
1: it's August thirtieth to September twenty seventh. The Jane Hartsook Gallery at the Greenwich Pot- House Pottery. On 16 Jones Street people, right. people should go see it Thanks Brian I mean I've been lucky enough to Live with a couple of your cups and pieces And I'd never pour a coffee into it And not think about you in that cup You know what I mean That's the beauty I think of, of work like that Is that you know It it always presents itself As like here's this thing I made And that you're using as opposed to the ones from IKEA, <laughs> which I <laughs> thanks. <laughs> you know what I mean? There's so yeah. much like life, and yeah. and the, it's really great. So, um, yeah, I encourage everyone to check out your work. And then you you do social media now.
0: Your handle is, yeah, no, I started doing Instagram. It's just uh, C Staley Art and Life. Right.
1: So, but yeah. it's got a lot of good stuff on there. It's not just you you know, your work and just images of your work, and there's a lot of thoughtful, interesting stuff on there.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that the, you know, why start doing Instagram at the ages, you know, 65 or whatever, and just just wanted to see what people are doing and participating in and, and then doing it in a way that feels comfortable with me. And, uh, you know, I've talked to some younger people that, you know, show their work on there a lot, and uh, I think if I was their age, I'd be doing that too. Right. Just getting my work out there, which I think is really valuable. But um, yeah, we all got to do what we got to do. So. Wild Friday nights. Wild Friday nights. <laughs>
1: <laughs> all right. Well, thanks for taking the time to talk to me. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks. Yeah. Sound and Vision is recorded, edited, and produced by myself, Brian Alfred. You can find more images from the podcast and uh, of the artist's work at Sound and Vision Podcast on Instagram. You can find more about my work at Alfred Studio on Instagram. Uh, Soundandvisionpodcast.com is where you can find episodes, past episodes running all the way back from number one. You can find images on there. You can even donate to the podcast if you'd like to support it. Thanks to Lollatone and to Michael Lovett for their musical contributions and thanks to all the listeners.